hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah, reading from chapter 41, verses 1 to 7. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw together, draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens his goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Two of the uh, very important themes that uh, dominate where we are in the study of the book of Isaiah is that uh, as the church, we have uh, begun uh, the end-time exodus of the people of God. And as well, uh, God has begun the end-time creation. The church is the new creation. As the people of God, uh, we are new creatures in Christ. Uh, But uh, having said that, uh, many, many questions endure. Can Christ really save us? Uh, And what about all the enemies that surround us uh, perpetually throughout our lives? Can they prevent us uh, in our uh, quest as uh, the new people of God in the end-time exodus? Well, it's here that uh, the prophet Isaiah uh, summons the nations verse 1, and where he tells them of their inability to prevent uh, his salvation of his people. Uh, And then lastly, uh, verses 5 to 7, he will condemn them for their idolatry. Our text is a shift uh, from a witness to Israel, which predominantly uh, represents uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Again, great promise of God, comfort to his people, and the fact in uh, the exodus that uh, will set them free from Babylonian captivity, he will uh, watch over them, care for them as an eagle does its young, bear them up on wings as eagles. A reminder of the first exodus, uh, that's what he did in uh, the wilderness, and now it's going to be repeated, and for us as the church, uh, these verses apply to us. Uh, He will bear us up on eagles' wings protect and to preserve us. Uh, but here it's a shift away from a witness to the people of God to our enemies. Again, it's a comfort to us that God deals with our enemies. 
and that they cannot uh, prevent us. So it's comfort to us, but discomfort to our enemies. Uh, As the sovereign God summons the nations, again, verse 1, seen in the reference to the coastlands. Uh, The scene is a judicial one. Verse 1, let us come together for judgment. Uh, One of the commentators uh, makes a very interesting statement on this summons to the courtroom. Uh, He says, God is judge. God is jury. God is the bailiff. And he's the prosecutor. Uh, I don't know if uh, it's ever been uh, your occasion in life to attend a courtroom. I have on a few occasions, uh, particularly small claims court. uh, But uh, I have never been to court where it was not impressed upon me in a profound way that the judge was in control of everything. That's really the point here. God is the judge, and he is in control of everything. It's a display of his sovereignty over the nations, more particularly his sovereignty over the enemies of his people. They're commanded to be silent. It's a prelude to judgment. Uh, God is about to move in history to affect his will, to set his people free from Babylonian captivity, and to begin a second exodus. But it has a more far-reaching fulfillment for us as the church in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, where John says there was silence in heaven. So that this uh, summons to silence is associated with judgment, that God is about to judge the nations in uh, the language of the prophet Isaiah, but he's about to judge the earth in the language of John the Apostle. In in Revelation chapter 8, the uh, context, the immediate context, is an answer to the saints who are praying. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 6 and the 10th verse, the, the prayer of the saints, how long, O Lord? How long will you delay? And God's answer is judgment. There's going to be judgment in terms of the language of the prophet Isaiah uh, as God raises up Cyrus uh, to defeat the nations and to deliver his people. Uh, For us, he raises up Christ uh, who defeats all of our enemies. It's very interesting that the, uh, the reformers have a threefold description of Christ. He's prophet He's priest and king. I remind you of the latter. He is king. In other words, he conquers all of our enemies and he rules over them all. And not one is excluded. As an illustration of uh, the profoundness and the profundity of judgment, uh, again, the context, uh, Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, the summons to silence given, of course, because of the depth of the judgment of God about to break upon the earth. Uh, There's a reference to the last judgment in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? We're going to learn in a moment that none of the enemies of Cyrus the Persian can stand before him. The greater reality is that none of the enemies of God are able to stand 
and face the judgment. It will sweep them all away and pulverize them and destroy them. It's a great timeless question. Who is able to stand? And the answer is no one can stand. The only way that we can stand is because Christ stood for us at the cross. And that's why we can stand. It is a great reminder of the gospel itself, that on your own, you cannot stand and confront the judgment of God. It will absolutely destroy you. But in Christ, you can stand because he took your place. As the sovereign, we're now in a courtroom and the judge is going to speak. He's the only voice that's going to be heard. He lectures the nation in verses 2 to 4, on their inability to prevent divine intervention. In the immediate context, they cannot stop Cyrus. In the more far-reaching redemptive context, they cannot stop Christ from saving his people, if he will, from saving us. The divine judge is lecturing the nations in an interrogative. Essentially, what God is saying in the courtroom is simply this. Who can stop me? And the answer is no one. Let's look at a text that is a great reference uh, to the sovereignty of God. Job chapter 42 in the second verse. Uh, Job says of God, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. God is sovereign, and that the enemies of the people of God in Babylonian captivity cannot stop God, and neither can any of the enemies of the people of God stop the church or stop Christ from saving his church because his purposes cannot be thwarted, and no one can stay his hand. Again, the immediate context is God raising up Cyrus the Persian to invade and defeat Babylon. And Cyrus, in turn, will let the people go. Again, there's imagery here that's very important for us to recognize, and that is the imagery of the Exodus. It applies to us as members of the church today. We are engaged in the last great immigration movement of all time. The people of God are moving to heaven. We're surrounded by enemies, but they cannot stop us or prevent us because of Christ, our Redeemer. Cyrus will fulfill the righteous end of God. The language here repeatedly in the text describing the raising up of Cyrus is that of a divinely appointed warrior. God will raise him up. God will call him. God will give the nations before him, and he will subdue kings. His bow and his sword have divine blessing and success, and he will have a swift advance. Behind all of this is God. In a more far-reaching redemptive concept, uh, Cyrus is a servant of God, but we have a greater servant son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, Nothing can stop him. Nothing can get in his way. A couple of occasions in our study of the book of Isaiah, I've mentioned to you the words of uh, the Apostle Matthew, uh, that he enters the house of the strong man and binds him 
and plunders his house. What a great reminder of Christ our King. He binds Satan and then plunders his kingdom and wins his people and leads him in the last great end time exodus. Behind all of this is the sovereign power of God. Now, the section beginning in verse 2 ends in the fourth verse. Great question. Who has done this? The answer is me, God. God has done it. Yeah, it's in two parts, the answer. The first is an action, and then secondly, an identity. Let's look at the action part first. The one calling the generations from the beginning. In other words, all of humanity is the servant of God. Every generation of humanity, God has called. They are his servant. Kings in particular. Second is the person of God. I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am he. Implicit in this is the reality that God is sweeping away all claims except his. The title is a figure of speech. The technical word for this particular figure is a merism in which two extremes are detailed, but everything in between is included. But what are the extremes? I am the first and I am the last. But God is everything in between. In other words, he is sovereign over all of history. And nothing can prevent him from executing his will, from calling his people, from protecting them, and in achieving the destination of this last great end-time exodus. It's very interesting in the Hebrew text, uh, the word last, I'm the first and I'm the last. The word last is in the plural. We don't translate it that way because in and of itself it too is a figure of speech. Hebrew language, sometimes the plural is translated as singular in terms of a plural of majesty or excellence. In fact, the very word God, Elohim, is plural, but we don't translate it plural because it's a plural of the majesty and the supremacy of God. The word last here is in the plural, but we translate it singular as a plural of majesty. It's translated in the singular to intensify its meaning. I take it as all future things, all future events, and all peoples God is in control of. The great doctrine of the sovereignty and the majesty of God. He's not just supreme, but it's not just a title. He rules over everyone and everything in the supremacy of his majesty. If you're like me, or maybe you're not like me, I, I worry over everything, really to no avail. I don't, I don't change anything by my worry. But think of it in this way about salvation, the majesty of God. Is it in doubt? Is it in question? Can something stop or prevent our salvation? If I begin the last great end time exodus, can something get in my way? God says I'm the first and the last. I control everything in between. God is going to save his people and he's going to get them to the end because he is the beginning and the end. 
There is no limit or obstacle on the divine ability and perfection. There is no cause that is superior to God. There is nothing that is able to prevent him or to stop him. He is able to operate without any limitation whatsoever on the execution of his will. Think about that for a moment, of the majesty of who God is. You and I virtually are sovereign over nothing. We can plan our day, and our day can run topsy-turvy. Not so with God. We can set out to do something and maybe get halfway through, and then something prevents us. An incident, a car wreck, a train wreck, who knows? Not so with God. He is not subject to time or chance or any power that is above or supreme to him because he alone is the sovereign king of the universe. It's a reminder, of course, that uh, God is not even subject to time. There is no time with God. Everything is eternally present. Turn with me, if you would, in the Psalter, Psalm, uh, Psalm 102. Great reminder of the eternality, infinite perfections of God. Psalm 102, in verses 25 to 27. Of old thou didst found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. Thou wilt change them, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. God is totally immutable because of his infinite perfections. That God is without beginning or ending or succession. This is captured in the designation, by the way, of I am he. It's a very interesting phrase because I think it's an allusion to uh, Exodus uh, chapter 3 and verse 14. Uh, it's a great reminder because contextually, uh, in Isaiah, God is about to begin the great second exodus. But in Exodus 3, God is about to begin the first exodus uh, using Moses. Uh, exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 12 to 14. And he said, Certainly I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought up the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The answer of God to Moses is a stress on his continuous, eternal existence. There is no other person in all of the universe save this one God who has continual, eternal existence. It's really a reminder to Moses as he is to identify God to the children of Israel who are about to begin the first great exodus, that God is absolutely eternal in his attributes, and therefore totally and completely able to defeat Pharaoh and all of his gods. Deliverance in that sense, with this one phrase, I am, deliverance is now certain because of who God is. 
He's sovereign over Egypt and therefore sovereign over the nations. By the way, this text has a more far-reaching fulfillment than our own salvation. I am very prominent in the Gospel of John. Jesus says in John 6.35, I am. Same phrase, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, verse 12, I am. He's identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament, with the God of Isaiah 41, with the God of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. I am the light of the world. My favorite. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the light. John chapter 8 and verse 8, Verse 58, it's a great encounter between Christ and his enemies, Pharisees and Sadducees. Christ turns to them in one of the great disputations with them, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Their immediate response is to stone him because of blasphemy. It's not blasphemous. It's truth. It's who he is. He's the God of eternal perfections. I love the encounter, John chapter 18, the uh, soldiers and temple guard come to arrest Christ. And they come up to him and uh, we're seeking Jesus. And you remember how Jesus responds in John chapter 18? I am. And immediately they retreat and fall back. It's as if in a moment the envelope of the majesty of Christ is peeled away and they catch in a moment his identity and they retreat before the divine perfections. I am, Jesus says. The significance is that Christ is identified with the God of the Old Testament who set Israel free from the first exodus and the second exodus as well from Babylon and now, and now he is setting us free from the kingdom of darkness, and we have begun the last great movement of immigration, the last great end-time exodus, the people of God moving to eternity. Who can stop us? Well, it's a great question, but the more important question is, is who can stop God? No one, and therefore, who can stop the church? The answer is no one and no thing. As God, Jesus is starting over with us in the last great and final deliverance. It's another more far-reaching statement with respect to this merism, I am in the first and the last, uh, as pointing to the majesty of Christ in our own salvation, Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. Again, I think Isaiah the prophet has a much more far-reaching fulfillment way beyond Cyrus, way beyond Babylon, uh, pointing to Christ by the divine authorial intent of God who is the ultimate author of all of Scripture. Revelation chapter 22 and verses 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And notice the phrase. I think it's an allusion to uh, 
Isaiah 41, Exodus 3, many, many other statements. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Notice the promise, verse 12. I'm coming quickly. Can he fulfill that promise? That's the point of our salvation. Given who he is, of course he can execute his promise because he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You can see the merisms. There's three. Jesus isn't just Alpha and Omega. He's every letter of the entire alphabet. He's all of the sum and substance of the majesty of the divine Godhead because of who he is. And nothing can get in his way or prevent his people from reaching the terminal end of their glorious salvation. But again, the particular reference here, the first and the last. What God has done in the past with Israel, he's now doing again in Christ, who is the sovereign Lord of history. He has complete and total freedom to act. God raised up Cyrus for political deliverance. He raises up Jesus, the great servant son, uh, to effect spiritual deliverance, eventuating in the totality of our rescue from guilt and sin and body and soul. I worry about a lot of things in life. Ought not to worry about who Christ is and what he does for his people. He is the greater warrior king, and God will bless all of his actions in redeeming his people. The divinity of Christ assures our rescue, and nothing can or will get in his way. In that Jesus controls the future, our deliverance is absolutely, totally certain. The reason, one of the many reasons we worship God, because Christ was the first and the last, and everything in between. In, in the prophet Isaiah, uh, having summoned the nations into the courtroom, uh, having told them that they cannot stop God, uh, the movement uh, concludes in verses 5 to 7, uh, the nations become afraid in light of who God is. And when men, when men become afraid, what do they do? Well, they retreat to their gods. In this case, uh, the nations retreat to their idols. They, they hear the pronouncement of the divine judge and, and they become afraid. Verse 5, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. And so uh, they begin to, to, uh, to build idols <laughs> so that their idols will save them from God. It's an incredibly ironic, uh, tragic scene, but it's exactly uh, the point of the text is uh, the prophet is mocking their idols uh, who cannot save them from God. Uh, it is a true statement that when men become afraid, uh, they... Uh, they go to their houses of worship. They get at their idols. Uh, they manufacture idols. Uh, and in, in the language of the prophet Isaiah, they help and encourage one another as they fashion their idols. Uh, I, I, I love the last reference. Uh, they have to nail the idol down so that it will not fall over. Uh, that's very, it's quite ironic, isn't it? <laughs> that, the, that the gods that they're fashioning need the help of the ones 
fashioning them to remain upright. The idols are dependent upon men to make them, and what are men but totally fragile themselves, totally unstable, and utterly unable to stop or to prevent God? Think about that. They retreat to gods who are no gods at all. And you and I know the one true God. In contrast, uh, Jesus does not need our help. If he did, he wouldn't be God. He comes to help us as our Savior. Uh, not even death could get in his way. I love the phrase in uh, Revelation chapter 1. It says of Jesus, I have the keys of death and hell. Now, my friend, that's sovereignty, and that is power. If you can control death, and Jesus does, you are a God so majestic and so supreme that you're worthy of our every worship. And so what does he do for us? He conquers death, cross, becomes the resurrection and the life that not even death can get in our way. He's all-powerful and totally independent of his creation and totally at every point from first and last, beginning to end, Alpha and Omega, to impose his will upon the created order to rescue his people. Really kind of mocks my worrying, doesn't it? Well, how can you worry if, if the God that you worship is the God that you worship? Now, we're all fallen, and I'm numbered among those as well. It's a good reminder when you worry. I understand. We, we need to pray. Be anxious for nothing, Paul says. Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make our requests be made known to God. But try another tract, if you will. When you start to worry, Remember the words of Jesus, I'm the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You're safe. We call that doctrine eternal security. It's true, not because of us, but because of Jesus, our God. Old Testament, it was Cyrus. Old Testament was Babylon. Uh, to us, it's Christ, the greater Moses, and the kingdom of darkness. Reminder that uh, idols don't deliver. Jesus does. I don't know if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, maybe you, you find security in, I don't know, your bank account, uh, your parents, President of the United States, I, I don't know. people seek uh, security in all types of things, uh, idols, you see them on cars, uh, nothing works, save him was the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You put your hope in him. You're secure. You're safe. All of us are very fond of the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8. Paul says, I am persuaded. I'm convinced, he says, that neither death nor life. By the way, that's a merism. Everything in between. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come. You see the merism again? Everything, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall what? Be able 
to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isaiah, God is mocking the nations who cannot stand before Cyrus. And now Jesus is telling us that nothing, absolutely nothing, the Apostle Paul has ransacked every possible eventuality in his language in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can stop God from saving us and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because of who Jesus is, the one who called us, who saved us, and now who preserves and who protects us. That, I think, is a savior who brings to us comfort in distressing times and security in the midst of an insecure, failing world. The sovereignty of God is the entire basis of the end-time exodus and the certainty of our completion of the journey. Great promise and hope of the church. Jesus is not to be denied, and the unbelieving world cannot get in his way, cannot stop the church in the last great immigration movement of all time. Well, this morning we have not just the comfort of the theology of the prophet, the apostles, we have the comfort of the sacrament of the Lord's table. Uh, it's our custom at Grace Bible Church to uh, partake of the sacrament of the Lord's table uh, first Sunday of the month, it's a reminder. A reminder of the graciousness of our Savior. Uh, he comes all along the way to meet our every need. The journey is perilous, I admit that. The journey is fraught with danger, I even admit that. It's a journey in which we grow hungry and thirsty, and I admit that. But Jesus is ever with us, and he comes to nurture us and to prosper our faith, to remind us of the fullness and the totality of his provisions as our Savior. Background, of course, uh, the Passover meal. That God uh, redeemed his people in the Old Testament. Christ is our Passover sacrifice. Sets us free. Uh, the uh, sacrament of the Lord's table is for the church, for Christians. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and no one's going to be looking at you or watching you, but just something that you should not participate in because you're not a member of the body of Christ. Uh, it's also uh, not for those who are living in known sin for which they are unrepentant. Uh, it's one of the reasons at Grace Bible Church uh, we begin our services with confession of sin. Uh, not just publicly from uh, the pulpit, but that, so you have occasion in the silence of your own heart to confess your sin before God. Uh, so that we come in the purity of, of uh, the majesty of the purity of Christ our Redeemer. Uh, it's a great scriptural warrant uh, for a backdrop of the sacrament of the Lord's table in John uh, chapter 6. Uh, simply going to read uh, two verses, 53 to 55. Uh, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Symbolic reference of the constancy of the provision of Christ. 
reference our communion with him, our fellowship with him, that he is the daily nourishment of our faith to keep and sustain us all along the way. He is our provision. Uh, at Grace Bible Church, uh, this service is open to all who are Christians, who have been baptized, and again, who are not under church discipline or not living in some known sin for which they are unrepentant. If you're not a member of the church, you're welcome to come uh, because you belong to Christ. He is your Savior and your Redeemer. I encourage you to come uh, that your faith might be strengthened and nourished and that you might be built up and uh, all of the aspects of your, your journey. Uh, and so Christ is the bread of heaven. And the first element of the sacrament is uh, Christ, the bread of life. As uh, the bread is uh, broken and served to you, I invite you to engage the Lord in silent confession as we pass the elements. Uh, we will all eat together as an expression of the unity and the oneness of the church. So hold the element until which time uh, all are served. Uh, but again, begin to reflect upon uh, the spiritual provision of Christ. Uh, symbol is he is food, but we apprehend the reality by faith. We trust him, we feed upon him, and he nourishes us in our journey as we appropriate uh, his provision by faith. Uh, and so let's begin to uh, reflect upon Christ as the bread of life. Uh, if you need to uh, confess sin, then the silence of your own heart, uh, certainly something to get about. Uh, but to reflect upon the majesty of the provision of our Savior in the fullness of thanksgiving, that eating him, you will live forever. Let's begin to prepare our hearts uh, for the bread. <clears throat>